Hey everyone, it's Marielle. And before we get to the show, I want to warn you. What you are about to hear contains explicit language, adult themes, and may not be suitable for all listeners. Discretion is strongly advised. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Woman of Death Row. I'm Amanda. I'm Marielle. This is a podcast. (laughs) This is a podcast that shares the stories of women on death row or have been executed by in the United States and other countries too. Um, We tell those various stories. But today, are you going to update us first oh, yeah. on the Vala case since oh. we last left off with some conspiracies and wishful thinking? Uh, this, it's heartbreaking. So yesterday, the remains of JJ and Tylee were found on Chad Daybell's property. And that was yesterday. Chad Daybell is... Chad Daybell was their stepdad, Lori Vallow's new husband. And they already knew he was dead. Or is he dead? He's now in jail. In jail. Okay. So he was married to almost 30 years to a woman named Tammy who died. And they just got a new autopsy. And she's passed under mysterious circumstances. So they're going through everything again. Like doing testing and all that stuff. What the fuck are these people doing? Great question. I'm sure there's a lot they're not saying and a lot. Mm Mm-hmm that they can't, but I haven't seen anything about charges, but JJ was eight and Tylee is 17. And it's so heartbreaking and tragic, heartbreaking Poor babies. You know, I just hope they can find justice and some answers to this because this is just for lack of a better word, like it's weird. It is an odd situation. It's an odd situation. Reddit is blowing up. A lot of subreddits. But I like to go to the sources that they get their information from and like look at the articles and stuff. But if you want like a comprehensive overview of everything, Reddit has some like it's totally like armchair detective people, but raise some good points. So Yeah. Yeah. So there's a vigil hosted for JJ and Tylee on Friday by a community member. So just keep everyone in your thoughts. The grandparents are just sad. They described it as an unfathomable sadness. Mm. So we'll see what happens. That's the latest update. Unfortunately, I was really, really hoping that they were in like a bunker somewhere. Yep. Damn it. But you know, they're not in pain, suffering. Hopefully nothing led that didn't lead to that. Yeah, who knows? Well find out. Mm-hmm. Hopefully. Not hopefully we'll find out. Hopefully, like that information will be released because there's some sort of like justice being served. Like right. because they I'm definitely keeping up with the trial. Well, that's what I was just gonna say. I wonder if this is gonna be another one of those trial by media situations where it just completely fucks up the case. Hmm. Well, 
We'll see. Oh, I got a kitten around my foot. Well, would you like to hear a different story? Yes, I would love to hear a story. I wrote this like a month ago. Oh. Okay, so my sources are all that's interesting. Headstuff.org, the encyclopedia, and history.com. So I want to start with this quote from Troy Taylor, who wrote about this crime. And he said, the Snyder Gray murder, as one crime writer put it, was a cheap crime involving cheap people. Many considered it the low point in the history of the early 1900s. But for those who lived in the thrill-hungry days of the Roaring Twenties, they devoured every sordid detail and made the otherwise mundane personalities of Ruth Snyder and Judd Gray into infamous celebrities. In addition to murder, their second greatest crime was simply being stupid. Oh, wow. So I'm going to be telling you about Ruth Snyder. Ruth Brown, later to become Ruth Snyder, was born in Manhattan in 1895. She came from a working-class family, but was determined to better herself. So she had to leave like a full-time education around the age of 15 and got a job working at a phone company, which back then she was like pulling the things and plugging them in and operator. Ding. So she's working at the telephone company during the day and taking classes in business and shorthand at night. So these studies lended her a job working as a stenographer at Cosmopolitan magazine, which is one of several magazines owned by William Randolph Hearst, who's got a, Interesting story alone with his daughter, Patty Hearst. So now I'll tell you about her marriage. One day, entirely by chance, she dialed a wrong number and Albert Snyder answered. So she like plugged the wrong thing into something. And Albert was not in a good place. He'd been involved for 10 years with a woman named Julie Gashard, and the two had become engaged, but she died of pneumonia only a short time before the wedding. As a result of this stress, Albert went on a tirade against this person who had cold called him. But when Ruth gave a distressed apology, he felt bad and apologized right back. So they got to talking. And the next day, Ruth called him again, but this time deliberately. After a few days, the pair met up in person. And he was Albert was charmed by the lively blonde girl. He was the art director at Motorboating Magazine. Which was not porn. It was, I assume, really about motorboats. So they began dating. And in 1915, they were married. Albert was 32 and Ruth was only 20 years old, which is not an unusual age difference for the time, but a clue to the troubles their marriage would encounter. So Ruth quit work to be a housewife. And in 1917, she became pregnant. This is possibly one of the biggest cracks in the marriage because she was excited about it, but Albert had no desire to have kids. He eventually was like, all right, I'll be okay with it if I have a son. But the child turned out to be a daughter who she named Lorraine, and he was not backwards in expressing his displeasure for having a daughter. The real underlying flaw in the marriage was their incompatible temperaments. Albert was an introvert with a tendency towards outbursts of temper. He'd never really gotten over Julie Gashard's death and frequently compared Ruth unfavorably to her. 
He even kept a painting of her on the wall as the couple moved from a small apartment in Queens to a larger apartment in Brooklyn. So he still had a painting of his dead fiance. And when Lorraine was born, then out in the house of the suburbs of Queen Village in 1923. So he moved the painting three times. Uh, around that time, Ruth's father died and her mother, Josephine, moved in with the Snyders. Josephine soon decided that this marriage was going to end badly and advised Ruth to get a divorce. Ruth didn't take that advice, but she did, did take advantage of her new live-in babysitter. So she would take the train into town, meet old friends. These friends nicknamed her Tommy and thought of her as a, quote, good sport. And she'd return home in the in the early hours of the morning smelling of bootleg gin. Obviously, they had a shitty marriage, which something usually goes hand in hand with those as affairs. So Ruth may have had several affairs before another couple from her set arranged a blind date, which is her click, I guess, a blind date with Henry Judd Gray in Henry's Swedish restaurant. But if so, none would match this one in intensity. So unlike her other affairs, this one was intense. Like her, Judd was married and had a child. Ruth was a tall blonde with solid good looks and a commanding personality. And these are quotes. Judd Gray was short and almost instantly forgettable. He had a cleft chin and thick glasses that gave him a perpetual look of surprise. So despite the fact they seemed to be polar opposites, sexual attraction flared between the two of them at their first meeting and they began a torrid affair. They bonded over a mutual detest of their spouses, both of whom they regarded as boring and horrendously conventional. Eventually, the relationship turned physical, reportedly being first consummated in Judd's office at the Bienjoli Corset Company. After that, the pair began to meet up in Manhattan hotels. Judd even snuck into the house at Queens Village when Albert was out of town. The pair even had nicknames for each other. Judd was Bud. And despite being two years younger than him, Ruth was momsy. Ruth soon changed from a, quote, sex-obsessed housewife to a woman with devious plans. Bored in her loveless marriage, she tried to convince Judd that her husband mistreated her and that he must be killed. Judd objected, but Ruth continued to pester him with hints, suggestions, and outright demands. She would playfully soften those demands with terms of endearment that the two of them had created for the So, Come on, bud, dear. Just kill him and you can be with Momsy. <laughs> I just imagine. They also often used baby talk. Ruth's persistence so unsettled Judd, however, that he took to drink, consuming huge amounts of prohibition liquor in an effort to settle his nerves. Momsy begged, argued, and threatened but, quote, lover boy continued to refuse. On March 20th, 1927, Ruth Snyder claimed two giant Italians had broken into her house in Queens and knocked her unconscious. They tied her up in the hallway and left her there. And she said then, while her nine-year-old daughter was still asleep, they killed her husband and stole her jewelry. Police were immediately suspicious because Snyder didn't look like she'd been knocked out and they also found her stolen jewelry stuffed in a mattress. So writer Damon Runyon dubbed the 1927 killing of Albert Snyder the dumbbell murder, but not because of the murder weapon. The moniker came because the killers were, to put it bluntly, stupid. 
So it was a tale that will ring familiar to fans of film noir and crime fiction. The bored housewife meets a married man with whom she begins a tour affair. Her inconvenient husband? Well, he's still good for something, but only if he's dead. Insurance money. The insurance had a special clause in the case of sudden death called the double indemnity, which is what the name of the movie I watched yesterday is. The double indemnity clause would pay out twice the amount, $96,000. In today's money, that would be at least worth at least a million dollars. According to Judd, Ruth made several independent attempts to murder her husband before before she came to him for help. These included engineering gas leaks while he was asleep, knocking the jack out from the car while he was under it, and closing the garage doors while his engine was running. Albert survived all of these without even realizing they were anything more than accidents. So every day he's just like, man, I survived another day. <laughs> Jesus. He had no idea. She also allegedly put rat poison in his coffee, but it only gave him indigestion. When her friends inquired about Albert's health, she told them he was much worse off than he was and let them think he might die suddenly. But in truth, he seemed invulnerable to everything. (laughs) Finally, on Saturday, March 19th, 1927, Judd gave in. It was a cold, raw day on Long Island. Grace spent most of the day drinking, trying to summon the courage to go through with the murder. He and Ruth cooked up a plan that had him traveling by train to New York from Syracuse and then by bus to Long Island. When he arrived in Queens Village, where the Snyders lived, he walked around for an hour, stopping under streetlights to take drinks of bootleg booze from his flask, like almost as if he was hoping to be spotted and arrested for breaking the law because prohibition. But no one paid attention to him. And finally, he had to enter the Snyder home. He came in through the back door as he and Ruth had planned. The Snyder family was away at a party and would return late. Judd had promised to hide in a spare room where Ruth had left a window weight, rubber gloves, and chloroform, all tools of murder. So window weights actually kind of do look like like a Dumbo weight without like the end. So just like an iron thing. But they were used to hold windows open, I guess. So the family returned around 2 a.m. and Ruth opened the bedroom door a crack and said, Are you in there, bud, dear? (laughs) She whispered. She soon returned wearing only a slip and the two had sex with her husband asleep just down the hall. Finally, after about an hour, Gray grabbed the window sash weight and Ruth led him to the master bedroom where Albert Snyder slept with the blankets up over his head. The two of them stood on opposite sides of the bed and then Judd raised the weight and brought it down clumsily onto Snyder's head. The weak blow merely glanced off the man's skull, and while stunned, he let out a roar and tried to seize his attacker. Judd became terrified and let out a whining scream, Mumsy, Mumsy, for God's sake, help! (laughs) There was no panic in Ruth Snyder, however, and allegedly with a snort, of disgust and anger, she grabbed the weight from Judd's hands and crashed it down on her husband's skull, killing him. After that, the two of them went downstairs, had drinks, and chatted about the rest of their plan, faked a robbery by knocking over some chairs and loosely tying Ruth's hands and feet. Minutes after Gray left, Ruth began banging on Lorraine's door. Her child ran out and removed the gag from her mother's mouth. She told her to get help, so Lorraine ran next door to the neighbor's house, where the police were called. When 
Louise Molehauser arrived. He untied Ruth and she told him that burglars had struck her on the head and tied her up. Louise found Albert's corpse and called the police. Ruth told them that she had overheard noises in the hall and gone out to find two men in the hall, one of whom grabbed her neck and struck her head. From them, she remembered nothing until she awoken, tied up, and had woken Lorraine up. All she could tell them was that one was very tall with a mustache and they looked Italian. The story of this brutal murder was immediately a major news story, of course. The papers were more than happy to make up details. For example, like making up police interviews where they lacked facts. As such, it was somewhat difficult to pick up the pieces, but the driving force behind this coverage was a New York tabloid press war between the Daily Graphic and the Daily News and Randolph Hearst's Daily Mirror. To outsell each other, they latched onto stories with little relevance to public and used lurid details to draw readers in. The tabloids, quote, did not hesitate to make up details because there wasn't a strict adherence of facts by any means. (laughs) Before Snyder and Gray, New York tabloids created a similar media sensation out of the 1922 murder of a reverend and choir singer in New Jersey. So in this coverage, the tabloid press turned Snyder and Gray into sensational figures straight out of a Hollywood movie. This was especially true of Ruth, perhaps because Judd was small and had a rather, quote, wimpy appearance. Almost everyone seemed to accept Judd's story that Ruth talked him into murder. As reporter Peggy Hopkins Joyce wrote in the Daily Mirror, poor Judd Gray, he hasn't it. He hasn't anything. He is just a sap who kissed and was told on. I just love he hasn't it. He hasn't anything like it. He doesn't have shit. He's a loser. All facts now to love made man completely in the sway of a woman who was all whose will was steel. The couple was often labeled the granite woman and the putty man. Terms describing Ruth alone included fiend wife, faithless wife, blonde fiend, marble woman, flaming Ruth, woman of steel, hard-faced woman, vampire, ruthless Ruth, and the Viking ice matron of Queen's Village. She was also compared to Lucretia Borgia, Messalina, and Lady Macbeth. It wasn't long before they latched onto Judd Gray, though there are multiple stories of how they did so. Gray also spoke frequently to tabloids, painting himself as a victim. Before the trial even began, he described his affair with Snyder to Daily News like this. She would place her face an inch from mine and look deeply into my eyes until I was hers completely. While she hypnotized me with her eyes, she would gain control over my body by slapping my cheeks with the palms of her hands. Okay. This kind of media coverage generated huge public interest in the case. 1,500 people packed the courtroom every day of the trial, while up to 2,000 people mobbed the streets outside, wrote Jesse Ramey in a Spring 2004 Journal of Social Historical article. Hawkers sold fake tickets for $50, and souvenir vendors sold stick pins featuring a murder weapon, the sash weight, for $0.10. The most mundane is that they found his name in Ruth's papers and that her reaction when asked about them made them investigate further. So, like, she had written about Judd and, like, that's how they put them together. And then uh, 
There's another dramatic story where the police found a piece of monogram jewelry that belonged to Julie Grishard, which JG. And when they asked Ruth who JG was, her response was, what should Gray got to do with this? So that was pretty damning. But the truth is probably more somewhere like these were pre Miranda rights days. And so the police probably simply sweated the truth out of Ruth. Judge wasn't hard to find, even though he fled New York for Syracuse. Not only had he asked a policeman near the Snyder house for directions to the train station the night of the murder, but at the other end, he'd given the taxi driver who took him to his hotel a minuscule enough tip to ensure he'd be remembered. So it's like, you tipped him so shitty that he remembered you. It's like, you should have tipped him either like regular or like a lot. And then it would be like, or just a regular amount. So it wasn't long until he was tracked down and arrested. He had a, quote, alibi of sorts, which were letters sent from Syracuse that proved he'd been there the whole time, which I don't see how they ever thought that would prove, like, because you can send a letter and, like, there's no, I don't know. So, of course, the police told them they'd read the same dime novels he had and were more than familiar with the trick of getting somebody to send letters for you. Now that they had Judd and Ruth in custody, the police just lied to them and told each other that they'd already confessed. So with no lawyers present, the two were soon falling over themselves to blame each other. So now the trial. Even though the pair believed they had planned well, their, quote, robbery was far from convincing to experienced police officers. All the items Ruth said had been taken by the mysterious burglar, like I said, were found hidden in the house under the mattress. Detectives began to question her. Surprisingly, she gave it up almost at once and confessed, but not surprisingly, she blamed everything on Judd. He was found hours later hiding in a Syracuse hotel. He shrieked his innocence and insisted that he was not in New York. And then when confronted with the train ticket stub that he'd carelessly just thrown in the trash can at the hotel, he broke down and confessed like, dude, I'm supposed to eat that shit. <laughs> So, like Ruth, he blamed everything on his accomplice. By the time the case actually went to trial, the two former lovers were at one's throats, each blaming the other for the deadly deed. The trial became a media frenzy. Celebrities attended in droves, which I don't know who a lot of these people are, but I'm going to read them off just in case listeners know, and it's interesting. So, celebrities involving mystery writer Mary Roberts Reinhardt, director D.W. Griffith, author Will Durant, evangelist Billy Sunday, and Amy Semple McPherson, and many others. Sister Amy even received a large sum from the New York Evening Graphic to write up a piece on the sordid case. She would later be involved in a scandal of her own a year later, and she would use her column to, like, warn men against affairs, and she would say, you want a wife like a mother, not a red-hot cutie. Both defendants had separate attorneys arguing for their innocence. Ruth's lawyer stated that her husband drove love out from the house by longing after a departed sweetheart. He also said that Gray had tempted her by setting up a $50,000 double indemnity insurance policy on Albert Schneider. She was a loving wife, her attorney insisted, and it was not her fault about the conditions in her home. He then put the wronged woman on the stand wearing a simple black dress. She played the role of the suffering wife, 
tell of how her husband ignored her most of the time, except when taking her to the occasional movie. It had been she who had read from the Bible to daughter Lorraine and made sure the little girl attended Sunday school. Her lawyer glossed over the gray romance and Ruth justified their affair by saying that Jed had also not been happy at home. However, she claimed that it had been Loverboy who had dragged her to speakeasies and night spots where she watched him drink himself senseless. So Ruth swore that she rarely ever touched a drink and never ever smoked. Then she testified that Gray insisted that she take out the heavy insurance policy on her husband. Once, she told the court, he even sent me poison and told me to give it to my husband. At this, the excitable Judge Gray began whispering to his lawyers. A short time later, he also took the witness stand, and his attorney described Judd's situation as the most tragic story that has ever gripped the human heart. The lawyer claimed that Judge was a law-abiding citizen who had been duped and dominated by a, quote, designing, deadly, consciousless, abnormal woman, a human serpent, a human fiend in the disguise of a woman. Dramatic. He then added that he had been drawn into this hopeless chasm when reason was gone, mind was gone, manhood was gone, and when his mind was weakened by lust and passion. So Judd played the victim when he took the stand. He was nervously glancing over at his elderly mother who was sitting in the courtroom next to actress Nora Bays, who had come to watch the show. He testified that Ruth had tried to kill her husband several times, once putting knockout drops in his drink, and then when they failed, trying to gas him. I told her she was crazy, Judd said innocently, after testifying about how she had given Albert poison as a cure for the hiccups. It made the man violently ill and said, I said to her that it was a hell of a way to cure hiccups. Gray added and told of two other times when Ruth tried to kill Snyder with sleeping powders. Finally, Judd stated that it had been Ruth who had taken out the insurance policy on Snyder and it had not been his doing or his idea at all. He described how she had struck the death blow on the night of the murder. And at this, Ruth began to sob loudly in the courtroom. Even the judge glanced at her like, all right, lady. (laughs) So in one hour and 40 minutes, the jury decided to accept Gray's version. He'd struck the first blow with a sash weight. Albert Snyder had groaned and turned, and Ruth Snyder had finished him off with blows of her own, after which they together applied the strangling wire and added chloroform-soaked cotton for good measure. Both were found guilty and sentenced to death at the electric chair at Sing Sing Prison. Ruth took the sentencing calmly. She may have thought that it's like unlikely that they would carry out a death sentence because it had been 28 years since New York had executed a woman. However, her calmness itself was obviously taken as cold-bloodedness. Shortly after the sentence was passed, Ruth Snyder converted to Roman Catholicism. Some more cynical observers believe that this was like a calculated ploy to win a commutation from New York Governor Alfred Smith, who was a Roman Catholic. The governor was even less likely to extend mercy to a co-religionist and leave himself vulnerable to charges of religious favoritism so he's like yeah fuck you you're on your own ruth and judd were taken to the death house at sing sing where ruth would be the only woman during her stay while much of the general public sympathized with judd as a man caught in the coils of an evil woman and hated ruth sentiment in sing sing was precisely reversed 
So they didn't despise anything more than a hyper in their hyper masculine world of male criminals than male weakness. So for him to be like, well, it's all her fault is a sign of weakness. So so shifting blame from one's own crime to onto a woman made the putty man lower than a slug in the eyes of his of most his fellow prisoners and they shunned him. So appeals were filed. One sought a stay of execution on the grounds that Ruth Snyder was a necessary witness in the civil suit to force three insurance companies to pay the benefits of Albert Snyder's life insurance to their daughter, Lorraine. Another appeal sought a writ of habeas corpus, which is a release for Gray on the grounds that his constitutional rights had been violated by the joint trial rather than a trial of his own. Both appeals were dismissed. While Ruth was in prison, her daughter Lorraine's future was debated in the courts. Both Albert's parents and Ruth's mother, Josephine, sought custody. Josephine had been far more involved in the girl's life and was the natural candidate, but Ruth's actions obviously spoke against her. In the end, though, the judge decided in favor of Grandma Brown, so Ruth's mom. Equally debated were the life insurance policies that Albert had taken out, to which Lorraine was now the beneficiary. One policy was paid out, but that money was just eaten up by all the legal fees. The case dragged on until years later. The other two insurance policies never got paid out. So the later life of Lorraine Snyder's not known, but that's really sad that the money she would have gotten for her dad's murder was eaten up in her mom's fucking trial. So she wasn't left with shit. They do know that Ruth refused to let her daughter visit her in jail, but she wrote a letter to be given to her when she's old enough to understand. But whether or not Lorraine ever read the letter and what it said, no one knows. So even though she was denounced in the press in terms of horror, Ruth did have her admirers. They were submissive men who swallowed hook, line, and sinker, judged depiction of her powers. According to Crimes of Passion, Ruth received 164 offers of marriage from men who, in the event of her being reprieved, were eager to exist humbly beneath her dominance. Ruth spent her time writing. Her memoirs memoirs would be published as My Own True Story, So Help Me God, in the New York Daily Mirror. It was a confused mishmash of observations, memories, and outright craziness. The first step on her way to her present predicament had begun with adultery, Ruth believes, so she devoted much of her prose to warning other women to stay away from affairs. On the 12th of January, 1928, the sentence was carried out. Ruth went to the chair calmly, though some newspapers who felt that the tale deserved a more moralistic ending, instead described her as in floods of tears and even rewrote their accounts of the sentencing to have her throw hysterics in the courtroom, which she didn't do. Her entire head was not shaved, but a bald spot was made for the electrode. Her eyes were red and swollen from crying as she was led to the death chamber, a matron holding her under each of her arms. When she saw the electric chair, she started screaming hysterically, and her body went limp. The matrons forced her to the chair as she shrieked, Jesus, have mercy on me. Then, as the black leather mask was placed over her face, she prayed aloud for her executioners using Christ's words, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Pause. So, Tensions were high as Tom Howard walked into New York Sing Sing Prison on the afternoon of January 12, 1928. 
As he made his way through security and into the execution chamber, he stepped carefully as he was carrying contraband that he found was certainly to get him injected or possibly arrested. Strapped to his right ankle was the reason for his careful steps. A custom single-use camera, which was a miniature version of a classic model he had, like, neatly tucked beneath his pant cuff and wired a shutter release up his leg and then a button close enough that he could just reach down. So after Ruth was brought in, this small crowd watched as she was strapped to the chair. And just as her body shook with the force of electricity, Howard pointed his toe toward her chair and snapped a single photo. It appeared front page the next morning with the headline, DEAD, all caps, It is still frequently displayed in articles about the death penalty. And they say, though Ruth Snyder was dead, her photo lived on. And it is a creepy picture because you can tell she's like, it's like the fact that he had one shot and this is the pic he got. Look, Google Ruth Snyder dead. And that's going to be the picture of her. Obviously, it's a 1927 or 28 camera miniature, but it's still like you can tell like there was in movement. So that's like the only photographic evidence or anything of an execution or a modern execution. So we'll definitely have to post that one. So like I already talked about double indemnity, the movie, there's also another great classic film noir. The postman always rings twice and both were inspired by the murder of Albert Snyder. In both movies, the killers carry out the murder of the husband in a manner quite a bit smarter than Snyder angry, but they don't escape their comeuppance in both the wife's lover is depicted as bachelor. Perhaps this was to simplify the narrative and focus attention on the triangle involving the murder victim. In every scene in double indemnity where the supposed bachelor appears, who was played by Fred McMurray, he's wearing a wedding ring. Of course, It was only a movie because the actor just didn't want to take his wedding ring off, which I didn't notice that while watching. So Double Indemnity was released in 1944. It was based on the novel by James M. Cain, scripted by Raymond Chandler and Billy Wilder, directed by Billy Wilder. Barbara Stanwyck starred as Philip Dietrichson, who was like the Ruth character. Tom Powers played her husband. Frank McMurray played her lover, Walter Neff. And Edward G. Robinson played Barton Keyes, who was Neff's superior in the insurance company where they both worked. And there was one part in this movie where, like, her lover is all worked up and, like, stressed because she wants him to murder her. So he goes, I stopped at a drive-in for a bottle of beer. And I was like, and then you just see, like, he's actually, like, at a Sonic with his mug and his beer, like, on the window tray. I was like, now that's a period quote. Like, I had to write it down. Stopped at a drive-in for a bottle of beer. I was like, we're almost back to that now with COVID. We can go get drive through fucking margaritas. But yes, just, like, that classic film noir. I stopped at a drive-in for a bottle of beer. Thinking. It's good. Like, the acting's pretty good. It is obviously, like, back then they did, like, stage acting, which is a lot of hand theatrics, which is outdated, but it was still good. Ruth Snyder. I want to see this picture. All right. Oh, here it is. Damn. Ew, that's creepy. 
Oh, God. All these people just standing there. Mm-hmm. How the hell can you? Wow. Nice. Yeah. Well, well, thank you. Hope you're all hanging in there. Thanks for listening. And we will see y'all next time. Oh, all right. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye.